2 Kings chapter 6, verses 24 through chapter 7 and verse 2 is our text this evening. Second Kings 6, beginning at verse 24, this is God's holy word. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. He said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by in the wall, and the people looked, and behold, He had sackcloth beneath his body, on his body. Then he said, May God do so to me and more also, if the son of Elisha, uh, rather the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Now Elisha was sitting in the house, and the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? While he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger came down to him and said, Behold, This evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. So far, the reading of God's word. Be seated, please, and let's pray together. Open our eyes now, O Lord. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says through this significant text in your holy word. 
We ask, O Lord, that you would speak to us through Christ himself, that the Spirit would be made manifest in the midst of our assembly here tonight, both in the preaching and the hearing of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In March of 1865, in the city of Richmond, Virginia, signs in the store windows told a story of war. Bacon, $20 a pound. Live hens, $50 each. Beef, $15 a pound. Fresh shad, not salmon or trout, mind you, but shad that I used to buy as a boy in Kansas, uh, cut up pieces of shad in a jar for catfish bait. Two for $50. Butter, $20 a pound. So it was during the war between the states. Cities can be reduced to desperate conditions in times of war. So it was in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Ben-Hadad, the second king of Aram or Syria, directly to the north of Israel, has penetrated to Samaria, this time not with the raiding parties uh, that we uh, considered last Lord's Day, it's described in verses 1 through 23 of chapter 6, but with the full force of his massive army putting the royal city under siege. The king of Israel remains unnamed, but it's more natural to assume that he's the last one named here in uh, the, the second king's narrative back in chapter 3, verse 1, then to place the, the account in the times of the kings yet to be named as successors uh, to the throne, uh, Jehoahaz or uh, Jehoash, as some think it is. Whatever the case, in this situation... God shows grace. Jehovah shows grace to his desperate people by giving them deliverance. This will be our theme this week and next as we consider four sections here in 2 Kings chapter 6, 24 to chapter 7, verse 20. Today we're dealing with the first two sections. First, the desperate need for deliverance in chapter 6, verses 24 to 33, and second, the astounding promise of deliverance in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. First, then, the desperate need for deliverance here in chapter 6, verses 24 through 33. The second Aramean siege of Samaria by Ben-Hadad II is significantly more serious than the first by his father, Ben-Hadad I, in 2 Kings 20, and it inflicts much more hardship on its residents. In this second siege, we have a picture of human desperation expressed in several ways in our text. 
Inflated food expense was one of the components of that desperation. Now, we've experienced something of this uh, as of late, tasted a little bit of what was being experienced in, in our own day, but nothing approaches what, uh, what we've read in, in this account. The famine here in verse 25 had, had already made food scarce, but the siege of Samaria further reduced the food supply to the degree that its inhabitants were reduced to eating donkey heads at the exorbitant cost of 80 shekels apiece, donkey heads that not only lacked nutritionally, but were also unclean for Israel to eat. Dove's dung, whether ingested as food or burned as fuel at the inflated price of five shekels a pint, was no bargain either. A shekel was about a month's wage. But the famine exacerbated by the Aramean siege was so severe that one woman in Samaria was driven to the unthinkable. Verses 28 and 29, she resorted to cannibalism. Her own son is the meal to be shared with another woman who had agreed that her son would serve as the next meal, but then reneged on that agreement. Were their sons already dead? This would perhaps mitigate our revulsion concerning this account, but only to a tiny degree. The first woman's panic for food and her sense of being wronged by this second woman impels her to cry out to the king for justice as he passes along the wall of the city. And the king's initial reaction expresses his sense of desperation, his own powerlessness here in verse 27. If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? You can hear the, the helplessness in his voice. The hopelessness bleeding out of his response to this woman. It doesn't appear that uh, the, the king even rendered judgment between these two women after hearing uh, this first woman's case, but simply expressed his anguish over the horror of what this siege was bringing about. Verse 30, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes, and the people looked, and behold... He had sackcloth beneath on his body. The divine judgment that hangs over this text adds to the picture of human desperation. In the covenant curses, the Lord had graphically threatened Israel with just this disaster if she should continue in her infidelity. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 through 53. We'll just read these few verses. A Lord will bring a nation against you from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, 
It shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. Who also leaves you no grain, new wine, or oil, nor the increase of your herd, or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high fortified walls in which you trusted become uh, come, come down throughout your land, and it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. This is the covenant curse that is, has come upon Israel. What we're witnessing here in this text isn't merely an Aramean atrocity, but uh, divine judgment for Israel's idolatry. And Elisha, would, uh, God's prophet, would have been, would have been aware of, of this covenant curse, and no doubt the prophet had counseled the king uh, to repent, hence the sackcloth, He's wearing beneath his royal robes. But hearing the woman's story drove the king over the edge, and he now had violence rather than repentance on his mind, swearing by an, a divine oath that he would take the king's head off of him. Verse 31 here. Then he said, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat remains on him today. Elisha, no surprise to us, having dealt with the previous account, is aware of the king's plans. Verse 32, it makes that clear. If Elijah knows the words of the king of Aram, that he speaks in his bedroom, then he, surely he knows the murderous designs of Israel's king spoken upon the city wall. King sends a message through an emissary to Elisha, but before the messenger, a messenger arrives, Elijah, Elisha rather tells the elders there, uh, sitting in his house, uh, to prevent the messenger's entrance, and so not gaining entrance into uh, through the door, uh, the messenger speaks the king's message from outside. Behold, verse 33, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now it's Elisha, no doubt, who told the king to repent and, and wait in faith for Jehovah's deliverance and health, uh, uh, help. Rather, But the king's message here in, in 33 appears, uh, indicates to us that he's rejecting the prophet's counsel uh, from the Lord, rejecting the Lord's direction through the prophet, essentially saying, I've already tried this faith and repentance approach, and it's not working. So I'm not going to wait any longer. When we find ourselves in desperate need of deliverance, and said deliverance doesn't materialize, what are we to do? 
when we cry out to the Lord for deliverance and He, in His timing, does not deliver us in ours, what are we to do? How long do I keep waiting for the Lord to meet my desperate need? As long as it takes. That's what the Bible teaches us to do. Psalm 37 is a psalm of David. It's a psalm of trust in the Lord. He says, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. And cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as light. And your judgment as noonday. Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him. Who prospers in his ways. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. And forsake wrath. That's what we're to do, to follow uh, the inspired words given to us by the Holy Spirit through the prophet David, and we're to wait on the Lord as long as it takes, even if, even if she should die, waiting and trusting, that's what the Lord calls you to do, the desperate need for deliverance. Second, we have in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, the astounding promise of deliverance. God's word through Elisha brings good news to the king. Verse 1, uh, says uh, the Lord, listen to the word of the Lord, uh, says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold For a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gates of Samaria. King's officer thought that this was too good to be true. And he answers the man of God, verse 2 Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be true? So Elisha follows the divine promise with a divine threat. Behold, you'll see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Now, were we to read the rest of chapter 7 here, we would discover that that's exactly, we will discover next Lord's Day, Lord willing, that that's exactly what happens with regard to this officer of the king. So the Lord gives this promise through Elisha. He's not promising cheap food, but relief from the siege. He was saying that things would begin to return to normal. A measure of a measure or a seah of fine flowers, about seven and a half quarts, and would cost a shekel, approximately one month's wage, the promise says. According to extra biblical documents, a shekel of silver would ordinarily buy about 100 quarts of barley at this time. 
But here, it only buys 15 quarts, two seahs. So Elisha wasn't predicting a massive reduction of inflated food prices here in 7-1. That's not what the Lord is promising here, but relative relief, which would seem substantial compared to the situation that we read about in verse 25. Simply the fact that there was barley instead of donkey's heads and dove's dung is a vast improvement on the situation. But it was still too much for the officer to believe, and therefore he was given a word of judgment that excluded him from the enjoyment of the promise. Note how the Old Testament expects and demands faith just like the New Testament. It requires that we believe what the Lord has promised. We're not required, we're not called here to have some some general faith that God will do unheard of things as though we can, uh, if we can just muster up enough faith to believe, uh, then God will do whatever we want. But if God makes promises, no matter how far-fetched they may appear to be, we're required to believe them. We must believe what the Lord says, no matter how unlikely it seems to us to happen. This is what Jehovah required of Israel in the wilderness when he promised to supply them with manna and meat, and their reaction was the same as the king's officer. Psalm 78, verse 9, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Didn't seem likely to them that he could do so. They didn't believe. We have many promises recorded in Scripture that may seem to us unlikely. David gives us one of them in Psalm 86, verse 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. They shall glorify your name. Does that seem likely to you to happen in our day? It seems like the circumstances that, that, that we observe in the world around us would make this promise likely uh, to happen. There's a New Testament equivalent of this promise, by the way. Philippians 2, verses 10, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that could take place now? In our day, in our time, when communism's grip on the world seems to be tightening rather than loosening, when Islam is so pervasive in the Middle East and Africa and is making inroads in the West, in Europe, 
and in the United States. You keep watching and praying and working in the Lord's vineyard, believing that God will fulfill this promise as unlikely as it might seem at this point in history. What about the promise that God gives through the Apostle Paul concerning sin's grip on those who are in union with Jesus Christ by faith? Romans 6, verse 14. Sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but grace. Some people refuse to believe this promise. Refuse to believe that that God could possibly do that in them because in their eyes, they're beyond deliverance. They seem to, to think that their past, either their sin or that of others against them or both, has so crippled them and determined their responses that they could hardly ever expect to live a life free from sin's Grip, But that's what Paul promises us in Romans 6, verse 14. He promises that because in our definitive sanctification, through Christ, God has broken the chains that once bound us to sin, and we're no longer slaves to sin. And by His grace... He enables us to overcome it. What about the promises the Lord has given us concerning our children? Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Or the covenant promise of Acts 20, verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children. What promise? The covenant promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's for you, Peter said on the day of Pentecost, in that, as he was preaching to, uh, to those who were uh, cut to the quick uh, and said, what shall we do? He said, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. But if our children, despite the fact that we've raised them in the covenant, despite the fact that we have sought to uh, nurture them on the scriptures to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What if they rebel? What if they, uh, into their older years, continue in their rebellion? And they don't return to the Lord, even though we cry out for them again and again. Do we stop crying out? Do we stop believing the promises that God has given to us? When this promise doesn't materialize, 
You keep believing. You keep pleading it before the throne of grace. Oh, what about the assurance that Jesus, the good shepherd, gives us in John 10 and verse 28 concerning his sheep? I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Is this too much to believe, given our waywardness, our weakness, and our waffling in the faith? Or is it gloriously true in spite of all of that, and in light of Jehovah's grace to his desperate people, in granting them deliverance? How long do you keep believing? How long do you keep pleading such promises before heaven's throne? As long as it takes. That's the Bible's answer. Even if you should die waiting to fulfill these promises, that's what God requires of you and me. You must believe what the Lord has promised, no matter how unlikely it appears to you that he will fulfill his promised word. Amen. Lord, we we are weak. And our faith waffles. And we don't wait patiently for you. We get impatient. And we, having cried out to you for your deliverance from sickness, deliverance from sin, a besetting sin, uh, we, we say what the king of Israel said. I'm not going to wait any longer. It doesn't seem like repentance and faith is, is doing the trick, and so I'm not going to wait any longer. And how often, O oh Lord, we fail to believe your promises, gracious promises, wondrous promises given to us and to our children. And so we cry out to you like the epileptic son's uh, father's Father of the, of, of the epileptic son, we cry out to you, O Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. We cry out to you, uh, even as the apostles did. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to believe what you've promised in your word. Even if we shouldn't see it in our, in our day and time, even if we should go to the grave, even if these should be the last promises that we plead before you, before we draw our last breath, teach us to wait patiently, teach us to believe the promises, as unlikely it appears that you will fulfill these promises. We ask that you would hear us, and you ask, we ask that you would strengthen us by your grace and deliver us, O oh Lord, 
by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.